today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue with the why not questions about what is reasonable to believe. Today, we'll be looking at the basic premise of Islam. Islamic belief is likely already the single largest religion in the world. So we should look at it clearly. What are the five basic pillars of Islam? Where did it come from? And even though it claims to have some of the same basic roots as Judaism and Christianity, are these three religions actually related? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Loop for episode number 39 of the Apologetic series here on the SSPX podcast. Well, Father Loop, it is great to have you back again with us. How are you? I'm doing amazing. Yourself, Andrew? Very well, thank you. I uh, So we have been talking with uh, Father Reuter and Father Wiseman about various false religions, and we're going to continue on that track this week with you, Father, um, about Islam. And, you know, there, there are plenty of things that, that could be said about this, um, but what is it? what is the basic premise that you'd like to start with uh, in refuting the idea that Islam is a religion to be believed in or the positive, uh, true religion? Well, that's, that's a very gigantic way of opening. It's, it's a broad way, right? It's, exactly. And be, before getting into that, I, I do think it's important to maybe throw out as a preliminary um, caution, because I don't claim to be, let's say, simply an expert on Islam. What we can look at, I think, today is going to be in a sense, a bit um, uh, basic, um, but which I hope can then serve as the foundation for those who may wish to go a little bit further, as they will. Um, yeah, like I said, your your question is very gigantic, and then there's a lot ultimately that's behind it. Well, let's let's start with let's start with a, a very basic question then. And I'm cheating because I'm going off the notes that you just sent me. No worries. But the very first bullet point says Dave and me in France. Okay. I'm really intrigued about how this has to do with Islam, Father. Well, that's actually um, just my, my own note for me. Uh, <laughs> a little anecdote in my own uh, personal life. Um, so pretty early on in my seminary career, I was sent for a summer to France. Um, um, perhaps it was the case that the, uh, the authorities in the seminary had judged that um, I was a failure at English, and so they might hope that I would pick up some French in a few months there. So I was in the summer of 2006, um, which interestingly enough, you know, given the, the news now with all the events in uh, Israel and in Gaza, uh, in 2006, there's another similar war between the Jews and the, the Palestinians uh, called an intifada. But anyways, while we were there, uh, one day um, in the midst of our efforts to pick up French, um, we were touring Paris, and uh, I forget exactly where we were, but we picked up some sandwiches for lunch, and we were sitting in a plaza eating them. And out of nowhere, this guy just actually approaches us and asks us in French, um, so what are y'all eating? You know, well, he may not have said the y'all part, but he, he did ask us <laughs> what we were eating. And um, 
and at this point, I don't forget it's me or my friend Dave who responded, oh, we're just having some por- um, ham sandwiches. And immediately the guy launched in to like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. That's against uh, the law. You know, that's, that's terrible. And you now maybe as another contextual piece of information there, both of us were already in Cassock. So you have two for all parent um, purposes, priests around in Paris, suddenly being approached by, as it turns out, a Muslim um, who then basically presumed to correct them in the heart of Paris about, no, you shouldn't be doing that. That's contrary to the will of God. How dare you? And I, being a young, idealistic young guy, started saying, hey, well, you know, as our Lord says in the the gospel, it's not what, you know, goes into the mouth that defiles man, but what comes out. And the guy's immediate response is, although the the gospel is, you know, all that had been altered. And, you know, that's that's obviously Mm -hmm. not what Jesus said. And at which point my friend um, ended the conversation. And fortunately, we did not end up with an international incident. You know, sure. But uh, that's, that's always a positive when you're having a, a, a ham and butter sandwich on baguette. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it was amazing. I mean, it's just <laughs> it was very interesting because this at this point now is effectively 17 years ago. And even then, you know, this this Muslim had sufficient confidence in his um, presence there to correct two clerics. I mean, two apparent clerics who weren't yet mm-hmm. in tonsured. But um. And in a sense, it's a microcosm, I would say, of this um, relationship that Catholicism has had with Islam since the beginning of Islam. You know, it's like I was just mentioning a few moments ago, um, right now, concretely, or or at least when we're recording this, um, this has become once more pretty, uh, let's say, urgent question, what with the the actions of Hamas um, the beginning of October, and the subsequent response, both uh, by Israel and then across the Western world, a pretty significant pushback against those actions of Israel, um, primarily on the part of, let's say, on the one hand, uh, the large, now even growing uh, populations of Muslims in Western countries, like there's been huge protests in a lot of uh, European cities. And um, with combined with, uh, you might call it the elements of the left, these um, non-religious, but very sympathetic to uh, Muslim life, uh, people in universities and stuff like that. So a lot of American universities, there's been a lot of um, uh, sympathy for the Palestinians. And that's, of course, gotten a lot of bad press from people who are supportive of Israel. It's very intriguing. But, you know, that those actions of Hamas are, in, to a greater or lesser extent, entirely in keeping with the the approach of Islam throughout its history, which is to, let's say, broadly speaking, seek to impose itself by force. Um, and so it does raise that question, okay, what are we dealing with here? Um, but on the other on the other side of it too, we have to keep in mind in trying to look at Islam is to take into account the actions of a lot of Catholic prelates, 
let's say, to speak very loosely, since the Second Vatican Council, where there's been an effort to promote a kind of uh, religious dialogue uh, and ecumenism, not merely between Catholics and Protestants, but also between, as they will say, uh, Catholics or the members of the different monotheistic religions. You know, so you have a, a passage in um, Nostra Aetate, which deals with these non Christian religions, where it said that the church also has a high regard for Muslims. These Muslims worship God, who is one, living and subsistent, merciful and almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and who has spoken to men. They strive to submit themselves without reserve to the hidden decrees of God, just as Abraham submitted himself to God's plan, to whose faith Muslims eagerly link their own. And it continues, although not acknowledging him as God, they venerate Jesus as a prophet. His virgin mother they also honor and even at times devoutly invoke. Further, they await the day of judgment and the reward of God following the resurrection of the dead. For this reason, they highly esteem an upright life and worship God, especially by way of prayer, alms deeds, and fasting. So, you know, so it's basically this effort on the part of this the churchmen at the council to highlight and exaggerate as much as possible, what could potentially be understood as elements of truth in Islam. Although, even in this short passage, there are some pretty significant problems. For example, denying the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's a, basically the whole essence of the Catholic faith as our Lord revealed it. Right. Um, and then you have the actions of Pope Francis, who more or less is just continuing in that broad vein. You know, so um, in the wake of Vatican II, you had created a commission to further Catholic-Muslim dialogue, which had a number of meetings. Um, and ultimately, you know, with Pope Francis, you know, he may have done some uh, actions which might be seen as. Um, extreme, but they're in line with this whole movement. Ultimately, you know, so we had the Abu Dhabi Declaration a few years ago, um, which tried to really indicate that unity as much as possible of Catholics and Muslims. Um, even going so far as to state that the diversity of religions is willed by God. You know. Um, and not only that, but also blessing uh, and by sending a cardinal to the opening of what's called the Abrahamic House in the United Arab Emirates. Um, it's a, a complex with a, um, a mosque, a um, synagogue, and then a Catholic church, you know, dedicated to St. Francis of Assisi. Um, the idea there being, okay, look, we all believe in one God, and we're going to try to promote somehow this unity. Um you know, it's, it's this idea that there is a lot that unites us, that puts us in common, and that's therefore we can work with them. Um, and it and, is true that, that, that broadly, you know, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, Catholicism, they all stem from the Old Testament. They do have this in common, but they have widely diverged. And so you cannot say it's the same religion. I mean, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself quite a bit here, but correct. I mean, there, there, there is a basis in truth that it all comes from, they, they all have that same kind of common thread, but we've all well, gone in very different ways. <laughs> well, you can, well, we'll, we'll kind of address that in a moment because I, I think okay. 
Yeah, on a superficial level, one might be able to say that, but at a once one looks at it a little bit more closely, that actually becomes not tenable even there. Okay. Um, but and before we get to that, maybe just a few other considerations. You know, just the relevance of this topic. Not only you know what's happened in the news recently, but also and uh, some of these actions of churchmen, but just you know on the ground, concrete reality is that Islam at this point is if not soon to be the single largest religion in the world. You know, uh, last statistic that I saw, you know, it's not to say that there's not more recent ones, um, was from 2017, which indicated that there's a rough estimate of about 1.8 billion Muslims throughout the world. And and the thing, the fact there is that the the religion is spreading both by, um, let's say, making converts, but perhaps right now, most significantly is they have kids, <laughs> more so than, uh, let's say, the average Christian. Um, and we can include in the average Catholic, you know, you look at the, the most, at least nominally Catholic countries, uh, say in Europe, Spain, uh, Italy, etc., each of which has um, and has had for some time a very significantly low birth rate um yeah it's quite it's you, you and i were actually just talking about this during the sacrament series when we were talking about matrimony and the inversion right. of the ends of matrimony yep uh and and at the time we were recording that father the birth rate for instance in italy a catholic country uh, was 1.2 it was around children. there yeah yeah and and i actually just looked it up recently and it's it's lower it's like 1.15 now so I mean, the birth rate is just dropping, dropping, dropping in, in Catholic mm-hmm. countries, but in places like, you know, Senegal and in, in, in Africa and Asia, Asia Minor particularly, the birth rate is increasing. Right. And that's a good point in the sense that, you know, um, when we think about, let me ask you, you know, just um, generally speaking, where would, when you, we speak of Muslims or Muslim countries, what are some of the first places that come to mind? Well, the, the first place would be Persian Gulf, but there's probably population-wise more in Africa these days than there is in the Persian Gulf. I don't know. That's just off the top of my head. Right. I don't know. And that's not bad. Could you? What would you think is the most populous uh, Muslim country in the world? In other words, the the country that has the most Muslims in it. Nigeria. That's actually a great guess, but no. Um, uh-huh. It's actually Indonesia. Really? Yeah. With a little over, um, well, actually, maybe uh, depending on the statistics, a little under, a little over two hundred million. Interesting. Um, and they estimate that potentially they may be overtaken, um, relatively near future, by India, uh, okay. with most Muslims per se. Um, and then you have some countries, say, in the um, not just the Persian Gulf, but in North Africa, like Egypt, like has about eighty million uh, Muslims or thereabouts. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, when you start when you start looking at places like Nigeria or Sub-Saharan Africa, there is another significant portion of, of Muslims uh, that you have in, throughout the world. In fact, Archbishop Lefeb, um, when he was the Apostolic Vicar uh, or delegate for French-speaking Africa, his see was in well, relatively small country by African standards called Senegal, which is on the west coast. And that was a predominantly Muslim country already then. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll come back to that and because you know he made some comments about that. 
Sure. And then, um, so there's that aspect of the reality. It's, it's, it's a growing force and I think will become more and more. So actually I was just looking at something, you know, um, it's, it's rather almost funny, but not, if you look at some countries, some of the, um, large political parties are, um, both owe their strength to um, Muslim populations and are increasingly represented by Muslims. So, for example, in a small part of Europe, the Scotland, now the leader of both the Labour Party, which should be very loosely and roughly compared to our Democrats, um, Mm -hmm. and also the leader of the Scottish National Party are of uh, Muslims of Pakistani origin. One of them, the uh, the Labour Party leader, is the son of the governor of Punjab in India. <laughs> you know, wow. a Muslim in north uh, northwestern India, um, and I think that's likely to become more and more of an issue as Muslims begin. You know, continue to have kids; they continue to have a lot of importing into, say, Europe, um, and that could be more of an issue. There was a there was a novel written a few years ago in France um, called Soumission which is the French submission, uh, uh, which is based off the name Islam, uh, which roughly means submission, and uh, um, in which the author was foreseeing in the relatively near future. Actually, he set the, the novel in 2022. So what he convinced, mm-hmm. obviously, it's not a perfect uh, prediction, but he foresees that... Um, the growing power of the Muslims um, in France will bring about a moment where um, the liberals, in order to win elections, will have to team up with the Muslim party. Um, there's not yet a Muslim party per se in France. Who knows? I mean, whether, you know, uh, what can happen, but it was enough believable that he could present a believable novel about it. It's not a novel yeah. I recommend at all reading, but... Um, and uh, and even more recently, you know, there is some talk about, um, say, the current president Joe Biden's policies regarding everything that's going on in Israel and with Palestine potentially costing him, say, like Michigan. Why? Yes. Because you have a fairly not insignificant uh, population of Muslims that live there in certain key areas, you know, who are not happy with the fact that the Israelis are pushing around the Palestinians. So, I mean, it's it's a pressing issue. And for us, over and above that, let's say, geopolitical reality, you know, it's we have to be very clear that this faith, kind of as hinted in your very broad question initially, is intrinsically incompatible and actually inimical to the Christian faith, you know, insofar as it denies foundational realities such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, and even the Redemption. Um so to perhaps put it in context, it might be good to look a little bit about the origins, kind of like what you were saying there earlier, you know, it kind of being having some roots in the, the Old Testament and whatnot. Um, and like I said, we can pay perhaps superficially say that, but um, at a deeper level, what we're dealing with here is, well, it was according to Hilaire Belloc, a heresy, you know, kind of a Christian heresy of sorts. 
Um, and it basically begins in the uh, late 500s, early 600s in what is now Saudi Arabia amongst various Arab tribesmen um, with the, the prophet Muhammad, who, um, you know, to simplify, began preaching in Mecca around 613 or so, um, claiming that he'd had revelations from God, from Allah, through um, an angel, a jinn, and um, having slow growth, slow followers, being expelled from Mecca, going to Medina about 10 years later, which apparently is the origin of uh, the uh, Muslim uh, pilgrimage, the Hajj, which goes in around there. And then returning to Mecca in 629, kind of establishing his base there, we were and then dying there in 632. At that point, it's very localized. It's really under his successors, um, known as the caliphates, caliphs, um, that you have um, a fairly rapid but sustained uh, expansion by arms, you know, basically military conquest. Uh, firstly, up through um, what we now call the Holy Land, up through Syria and whatnot, and then going west across northern Africa over that century, the whole rest of the 600s, um, you have that uh, expansion through um, Egypt, modern-day Libya, Algeria, Morocco, leading in the early 700s to an invasion of Spain um, and the conquest up north through Spain, up into modern-day France, um, ended at uh, Battle of Poitiers in 732. So through that period, it's just almost uninterrupted expansion west, but at the same time, there's expansion east through Persia, uh, modern-day Iran, um, and even into um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, those areas. Um, and just by way of kind of reference there, um, so St. Gregory the Great, you know, who obviously gives us uh, Gregorian chant, he's a Benedictine monk. He dies in 604, more or less, you know, given that very rough chronology, about nine years before Muhammad begins his public life, as it were. And um, and St. Augustine, for his part, you know, who was a bishop in northern Africa, had died a mere 200 years before, kind of separating him by as, uh, about as much time as us in, say, the Civil War. Oh, like, wow. That's about how close St. Augustine was to um, to uh, Muhammad's work. Um, and then, of course, it continues to exist in part because of the influx of new uh, peoples, such as the Turks, who were originally an Asiatic people that came west. Um, and yeah, and that, in fact, they were the ones who, in a sense, prompted the Crusades. So all those lands that I just mission, mentioned, with possible exception of Persia, are all Catholic, all Christian originally, and um, the the conquest is violent and imposed upon them, you know, ultimately. And the Crusades, the first Crusade, is in more or less begins in the 1095 with a famous speech of Pope Urban II in France. Um, so more or less 400 years later, you have a reaction by the church, uh, at least militarily. Um. And I mean, but at the same time, those crusades, they 
it's a temporary stop, but it doesn't really effectively break the back of Islam. Might have been able to, perhaps. That's you know a lot of what ifs there. Um, but again, um, Islam begins its continued spread after more or less retaking what the Crusaders had taken about 150 years later. And you have the fall of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, you know, again, up until 1453, uh, Constantinople was a Christian city. It was unfortunately schismatic, it was Orthodox, but it was still Christian. Um, and that's, again, relatively recent, all things considered. Um, it's the same time as, you know, Giotto, um, a lot of the high Renaissance. It's, it's after Dante, ultimately. Um, right. And of course, you do have, I mean, some some divisions within them. Uh, so, for example, the uh, you have the Sunnis as opposed to the Shiites. Basically, it's division about who is the rightful heir of Muhammad. You know what, therefore, is part of their legitimate tradition as well. Um, the vast majority of Muslims are Sunni. You know, the, the Arabians, um, most of the Africans. Uh, etc. And it's really the Shias are more or less limited to Iran and to Syria and maybe Lebanon, uh, more or less, kind of the main and that's population. A, and Was that's that? a whole fascinating rabbit hole. I, sure. I, I had one of those sleepless nights and went down the whole Sunni Shia on YouTube rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. You know, Iran versus Iraq versus, you know, Saddam Hussein versus, I mean, right. fascinating just from a geopolitical intrigue, you know, fascinating mm. stand, uh, uh, information about, well, that's why there is so much instability in the Middle East. That's why these guys don't, don't all, get, all get along. It's, I mean, you could make some comparisons to like Orthodox versus Catholic in terms of there was this big split. They don't like each other. There's thousands of years of history. Right. It's going to be really hard for them to ever get along type right. thing. Again, not a perfect analogy by any means, but it is fascinating. Yeah. And then I think it's it's a helpful kind of going back to my original point is not being an expert about these matters. It's like there's a whole world that's to a greater or lesser extent just cut off from us because, you know, it's um, it's behind this, you might call, you know, that you had the reference or the term, the Iron Curtain, you know, separating communism from the free world during the height of the Cold War. In a certain sense here, you have a, I don't know, a, a Persian rug curtain. You know, as it were, separates. <laughs> um, you know, Christianity uh, from this immense, actually, world and tradition. You know, so yeah. when we when we speak about, let's say, and we'll get into this, some of the the basic beliefs of Islam, we can say that, but there's a lot of nuance, of course. Just like you know, for someone looking outside of Christianity, sure. like okay, you believe that Christ is God, okay, but then there's all these nuances of course that comes here and that are not unimportant so so let's get into the theology a little bit father they are they are a monotheistic religion i guess we can start there right yeah sure no and it's i mean that's one of the most clear things about them and from a certain point of view um that's one of its strengths is that it's the theology all things considered is relatively simplistic and as a result accessible to the average, um, the average unlettered, uncultured person, you know. So basically, yeah, you have one God who has to be obeyed in all things without any question, 
and who promises uh, eternal rewards, in fact, of a fairly uh, sensual nature, um, which again is, is something which is that's attractive. Um, there's a great conviction behind that, um, and then it. Um, I'll read something written by Father James Shaw, who has a book um, titled uh, um, "On Islam." It's a collection of articles he wrote, but again, I'll get to that later. At least that quote is very short, but it's true. Like it's this very simple belief, accessible to simple people, um, uncultured, unlettered people. Um, it draws forth intense loyalty and zeal, actually, as we've seen throughout history. Um, so that's that's the basic underlying aspect of it. And then you have, it's fairly simple, the practice, broadly speaking, they, they speak of five pillars of Islam. You know, on the one hand, you have to declare your faith in God, belief in Muhammad. That, of course, fairly broad, because that's um, actually does include waging war, you know, is the jihad is part of your professing your faith. Um, Muslims are called to pray five times a day. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went um, on a pilgrimage to Israel, the Holy Land, uh, visits, you know, uh, a number of the holy sites where our Lord was. And um, it's intriguing, yeah, because they they have their. Oh, I apologize, the name just escapes me. Um, the minarets, you know, they're, they're the towers from which the local imam or others responsible for that will issue the call to prayer. Um, and they're they're quite in your face about it, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I remember distinctly. So being on Tabor, Mount Tabor, top of it, gorgeous. You have a Franciscan monastery there, um, very lovely church, great view of the surrounding valleys. But most of the surrounding valleys are filled with Muslims. And so uh, on one occasion, I stayed the night at that monastery and got there more or less at dusk. So uh, the evening time of prayer or sunset, whichever. And all throughout the valley, and now they use loudspeakers. You have this call to prayer. You know, it's, it's like I said, it's in your face. Like you will pray. We are going to make sure everybody within the vicinity of this minaret will pray. Same thing in Jerusalem. I think one of the hotels I stayed in was right next to a minaret and very loud, you know. And uh, yeah. And, and just on a very superficial level, that is, Catholics have a bit to learn about. A, a a reminder to pray and to do it five times a day. I mean, I, I would say most Catholics are lucky if they pray one time a day. So well, it's fair. Yeah, it's fair. I mean, you know? to that extent, we can uh, look at them. I mean, not just not just that, but also the public character of it. It's yes. what, let's say, in times of Christendom, the rough equivalent would be um, the the church bells. Yes, you know why. Um, the bell towers were such an important part. You know, and that for principal elements of the uh, the day or periods of life, um, it was customary to ring those bells or in times of emergency. But there's a there's a profound difference between the calming and let's say peaceful uh, ringing of bells and the the Arabic 
um, chanting of the call to prayer. It's a very different experience. Anyways, the next um, next thing, one of the five pillars is, you know, works of mercy broadly to give to those in need. Then to fast during Ramadan and then to make the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca, um, if they're able. Um, and that's that's a very interesting experience. So to, to dive into a little bit more of that theology, um, we can say that in a sense, Islam, and this touches on your question earlier, is an eclectic collection of beliefs and heresies, basically heresies, um, in which by itself does not owe any real origin. There's no substance to the origin of Islam in, say, the Old Testament or anything like that. It's just a, and they, they have in a way the same kind of claim to being um, uh, being originated from the Old Testament as Samaritans would. You know, these descendants of Jews and pagans that were mixed together deliberate as a deliberate policy by, uh, I, forget that, I forget if that was Nebuchadnezzar or one of these um, Old Testament uh, persecutors to the Jews. Um, right at the time of the Babylonian captivity, I mean, they're not really and truly uh, descendants of Abraham in any meaningful sense. Even even if perhaps one could somehow prove that um, uh, biological descendants through um, Hagar's child, Ishmael. Um, but here to kind of get into that, I'd like to just give a quote from John Quincy Adams. So uh, that American statesman from the 1800s, son of John Adams, a president in his own right in the 1820s. He he was a very learned man. Um, he had served as a diplomat uh, for the U.S. as well and wrote a lot. And he studied a bit. And he, in some of his uh, personal writings, had this to say about the kind of the origin and the beliefs of Islam. He's pretty, how should we say, brutal. He says, in the 7th century of the Christian era, a wandering Arab of the lineage of Hagar, the Egyptian, combining the powers of transcendent genius with the preternatural energy of a fanatic and the fraudulent spirit of an imposter, proclaimed himself as a messenger from heaven and spread desolation and delusion over an extensive portion of the earth. So it's a good... That's what we would normally call a captapsio benevolentia, you know, trying to, you know, warm the hearts of his uh, Muslim hearers. But then he goes on, he says, adopting from the sublime conception of the Mosaic law, the doctrine of one omnipotent God, he connected indissolubly with it the audacious falsehood that he himself was a prophet and apostle. Adding from the new revelation of Jesus, the faith and hope of immortal life, and of future retribution, he humbled it to the dust by adapting all the rewards and sanctions of his religion to the gratification of the sexual passion. He poisoned the sources of human felicity at the fountain by degrading the condition of the female sex by the allowance of polygamy, and he declared undistinguishing and exterminating war as part of his religion against all the rest of mankind. The essence of his doctrine was violence and lust, to exalt the brutal over the spiritual part of human nature. So as Adams points out, on the one hand, there are certain elements taken from Judaism, uh, such as the insistence on the unity of God, and together with that, the denial of the divinity of Christ. So John Quincy Adams doesn't mention that, but that is, in a sense, taken from Judaism. 
And then from Christianity, in addition to that future reward, um, you have the actual universality. So unlike Judaism, which is very, it's not, Judaism is not intent on seeking to make converts. You know, in fact, that kind of goes against the idea of being eight people chosen apart from the rest of mankind. Whereas Islam is, no, we're, we're going to submit all of the world to, to Allah, um, as well as accepting Jesus in some measure as a messenger from God. Okay. Um, now, in that, let's say, this idea of the unity of God, the universality of the true religion, um, another thing that Islam shares with, uh, let's say, Judaism is the fact that it is more and foundationally a law, an expression of the will of God of what is to be done, as opposed to an attempt to provide a true and, let's say, deep account of who God is or what God is, okay, which practically has some very important consequences. And that's you can get a sense that a sign of that is the very name of Islam, submission, obedience, okay, which means you accept the will of the one commanding. Yep. Can, can I ask a question? Could you expand yep. on that a bit? We Islam is less concerned about trying to understand God as they are, just trying to obey him, and they don't really care what characteristics he has, so to speak. Right. Partly because you may say... Um, for two reasons. Firstly, because the primary quality of God, we may say, besides his unity, the fact that he's not multiple, is his omnipotence. And there was a large school, a dominant school, ultimately in Islam, which came to the conclusion that to say that God is limited by his own nature, which it would be something we can understand, would be an attack or a diminution of his omnipotence. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. So, um, because of that, because of that characteristic of Islam, there's not the same place in it what we would recognize as theology or philosophy. It's not viewed in the same light of honor. And you know, one writer talking about this says a sign of that is the beginning of some of these Muslim works. For example, Averroes, um, who was quoted and discussed by St. Thomas Aquinas um, in one of his works. And basically, the, the entirety of the work is dedicated to defending, let's say, the study of philosophy before um, in the light of the law. And even going so far as to say that the law commands that you study uh, philosophy and the pagan philosophers. You know, So the, the approach is, okay, look, I have to justify this activity in light of you know, the, uh, the Islamic law, Sharia law. And the same author points out, okay, if you look at the beginning of the Summa Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas, the, the way of proceeding is the contrary. There, you know, basically the first uh, questions of the Summa, St. Thomas asks, what is the need of revelation? We have philosophy. Why would we need revelation? In other words, the, the effort there is to prove, using reasonable arguments, that, um, well, revelation is 
reasonable. You know, it's so the the, the way of approaching it is very different, um, and it, it has to do with that place of um, well, the mind thinking and even nature um, in the two different religions. So, for example. So I'll here I'll quote a little bit of a short passage from Father Shaw, James Shaw, on his book on Islam. And he talks a little bit about this, you know, why uh, philosophy didn't have the same presence in uh, Islam as it did in uh, Christianity and Catholicism. There he says in talking about a book by a man named Robert Riley, is what I wish rather to do is to summarize the issues themselves. Robert Riley argued effectively in the closing of the Muslim mind, what he states in a later pamphlet, a school of Muslim thinkers, the Mutad Salites, I'm probably butchering that, did accept the validity of the Greek notion of reason. This acceptance was something that Christianity itself did almost from its very beginning when Paul was called to Macedonia. A later school of Muslim thought, that of the Asherites, whose major figure was Al-Ghazali, rejected any relationship between the Quran and human or divine reason. This school became the main school of Islamic thought and it dominated almost all Muslim thinking. You know, and that's in the intervening time. So 11th century, 10 hundreds, basically. Um, and that's going to have immense consequences, of course, because if, let's say, there's no relationship between reason and revelation, you know, if there is no ability to give an account of God, it's going to affect, let's say, apologetics well, at a deep level. And even the great, you know, you have some great Muslim thinkers, um, but all of them are on the outskirts of the Muslim world and oftentimes in contact with, let's say, Christian sources. So, for example, that man, Erverois, who I was talking about, is from Spain. Um, Al-Farabi is another famous one. He's from Persia, and it seems there's even some indication that he studied under some Christian heretic um, clerics. And then similarly, Avicenna was also from Persia in the far outskirts of, let's say, the Muslim world, not in the midst of it. Um, and a continuing sign of this kind of depreciation of reason, depreciation of philosophy, um, is a response that was given by a sheikh uh, named Baraka, um, where in response to a Catholic priest, an Egyptian Catholic priest who wanted to try to, was part of this effort of uh, religious dialogue after the Second Vatican Council, he responded that uh, categorically that Islam has never believed that Allah would have conceded to man the right to have recourse to reason in order to organize society in any conformity with a natural law, which would correspond to a universal nature of man that is founded on reason. According to him, this would oppose itself to Sharia law and tend, in fact, to dissolve the articles of Islamic faith, I believe. You know, so there's no, again, this is one, uh, let's say, representative of Islam, of intellectual tradition there, but it's in keeping with that overall concept that there's no place for reasoning about God or about the nature of man 
and said, all we have to do is obey what God tells us to do, both as individuals and in society. Um, yeah. And so I mean, it really comes down to who is God for them. Firstly and foremost, ultimately, therefore, God is will. You know, and that means that he can contradict himself. He can command sin, you know, or, you know, uh, the taking away of life, etc., without any problems. You know, and again, like I was saying, that touches on their belief that he is omnipotent. And anything that would constrain that will, even himself, would be in a way an attack on that omnipotence. You know, so for example, again, quoting Father Shaw, he says, another basic problem with the Quran is implicitly granted by Muslim scholarship and tradition. Many basic passages in the Quran contradict each other. At one time, Allah says this. At another time, he says the opposite. Normally, this contradiction would be enough to discredit the whole enterprise. Again, from the point of view of logic. But the belief that Allah could contradict himself developed intellectually and historically in Islam. Will, or voluntarism, and not reason came to be accepted as the basis of everything. If Allah were not able to contradict himself, it was decided, he would not be all-powerful. And we would blaspheme if we didn't deny him this absolute power. Which is yeah. pretty intense. And of course, that also means that, you know, one of the other aspects, if that's true about God, it also very much limits man's free will. We have to obey simply. And interestingly enough, you know, if we want to, or do you have any other questions no, about no that? Questions, perhaps uh, uh, right now. No, this is this is fascinating. Okay. Well, in light of that, you know, it may be good to look at some of the. Um, so, if Islam doesn't necessarily have a place for a philosophy, but wants to assert one God wants to uh, insist on this blind obedience to him. How does that then link up to some of these Christian doctrines? Well, in fact, what we find is that um, in the Quran and throughout its tradition, um, Islam fundamentally and categorically rejects basic Christian dogmas. Firstly, the Trinity. And Again, partly as a result of that denial of reason, there's no effort to develop a theology that could give an account here. It's simply, okay, at first glance, you say there's three persons in God, that means mm -hmm. there's three gods, you're a polytheist, basically. You know, very, well, uh, simple response. Um, and so just to quote one passage of the Quran, there... Uh, we read that Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle of God, and his word, which he bestowed on Mary, and the spirit proceeding from him. So, believe in God and his apostles. Say not, Trinity, desist. It will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him. For exalted as he is above having a son, to him belong all things in heaven and on earth. And enough is God as a disposer of affairs. Um, yeah. So to claim that God has a son brings him down to a human mm -hmm. level, and that's blasphemous. You know, 
And there's no such thing as a trinity of one. And as a consequence of that, and it's fairly clear already in that passage, it means denial of the incarnation. So again, the quote from one of the surahs, they indeed have disbelieved who say, lo, Allah is the Messiah, son of Mary. So Jesus is God. It's an act of disbelief. You know, who then can do aught against Allah? Or I'm sorry, it continues on, say rather, who then can do aught against Allah? If he had willed to destroy the Messiah, son of Mary and his mother and everyone on earth, Allah's is the sovereignty of heaven and the earth and all that is between them. He createth what he will, and Allah is able to do all things. You know, it's once more, um, Christ, Jesus, is not um, the Son of God. He's not Allah. And because that would take away from this omnipotence in, their, in the mind of Muhammad and what have you from uh, Almighty God. And while not maybe spending a lot of time on this, um, getting rid of the incarnation, getting rid of the mission of our Lord, it also means that Islam denies redemption and sacrifice. It's actually rather interesting. Islam does not have sacrifice. You know, they have basic tenets of the law. People are obliged to obey um, certain very basic practices, but there's no act of sacrifice liturgically in that regard. Is that practice of the faithful? Yep. Okay. Well, both, you know, basically. There, there's, yeah, the only thing that you give to God is your submission, effectively. I mean, maybe very loosely, one could argue, kind of like we have there certain passages in Scripture, you know, um, where uh, a true sacrifice is a humble and contrite heart and things like that. But no external manifestation of that in reality. Now, um, one last thing perhaps to look at before talking about maybe some thoughts of apologetics, but is the claim of um, Muhammad to be a prophet. What's intriguing there is that Muhammad apparently did not truly make claim to any miracles uh, to have performed many miracles. There, there are some traditions, but it seems like many, many uh, Muslims uh, take it for granted that he didn't perform miracles in the way that we would think, with the exception of the Quran itself being viewed as this remarkable text that could only be have been produced by God. So, um, just a passage or a quotation from a Sunni scholar, Muhammad Asad. Who states that Muhammad performed no miracles other than to bring the Quran to humanity? Some other scholars, such as Cyril Glass and Marsha Hermanson, downplayed the miracles of Muhammad, stating they play no role in Islamic theology and plays less of an evidential role than some other religions. So the main thing there is the Quran, the beauty of the Quran. Um, and even from the Quran itself, uh, there's a great passage. Um, where we read, so this is the 11th surah. Will they say he hath forged the Quran? Answer, bring before therefore 10 chapters like unto it, forged by yourselves, and call on whomsoever you may to assist you, except God, if ye speak the truth. You know, it's, it's a response to those who are saying that it was um, just a human origin. 
And then a little bit later, so if the mankind and the jinns, uh, which are angels, let's say, were together to produce the like of this Quran, they could not produce the like thereof, even if they helped each other. Yeah. You know, the Quran is divine by its nature. And some even go so far as to say it is an expression of the divine mind. You know, so it's eternal. The Quran, as we have it, is eternal. Um, and then the last claim that Muhammad has is partly chrono- chronological, that he comes last to correct the errors of previous um, traditions. You know, again, to quote Father Shaw on this matter, you know, and he, he's critiquing this as he, as he describes it. So unless some thesis can be developed whereby the Jewish inscription, Christian scriptures are wrong and therefore in need of a revision, we have no reason to give any credence to the Quran. Besides, Muhammad is nowhere to be found in either the Old or New Testaments. The explanation for this absence is that they were he was later excised by Jews and Christians from their scriptures. So the Muslim, it goes back to like the, what I related in that episode of my life. This Muslim comes up and I say, okay, look, Jesus said this. He's, oh, no, no, the Gospels have been altered. They've been edited. So part of the editing was to take out any prediction of the coming of Muhammad. So Muslims claim, however, that the Quran is not only older than Abraham and Adam, but older than the world itself. It was, as it now exists, already in the mind of Allah. The Quran thus has a rewrite to the scriptures to clarify what they originally said. There is, of course, as, as a uh, no textual or archaeological evidence that anything like this rewriting ever happened. But since the claim is fundamental to Islamic convictions about the Quran, it must be in a way to do, defend it in a way that allows no examination or opposition. Yeah, you know, so he comes later to correct to represent to the world this eternal vision of the of God as laid down in the Quran, which is fundamentally. God is willful, omnipotent, willful being who can command as he wills. All right. Now, the question is, all right, in that case, if there is this, uh, let's say, opposition to Christianity, to the, the, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God, true man, um, they deny the redemption, which is needed for man in order to be reconciled to God. Right? How do then do we approach them and try to convert them? Um, you know, is it through dialogue? It's, it's a way that the uh, um, church has been approaching it since Vatican II, and I think uh, cannot be taken as a serious position because, again, even at the best, let's say we dialogue, the whole point of that is to bring them to the truth, which we already have. You know, if our Lord is God. And he founded his church with the guidance of the Holy Ghost to be preserved from all error. Well, we have that truth. Any dialogue is merely meant to draw them to that. But it's obviously not an easy thing when we're dealing with Islam. It's very durable. It's been around for 1,400 years. Longer than Protestant. It it will out-survive Protestantism. Protestantism, as we know, it is on the way to, to the grave effectively um yeah well, I mean, in a way you could also say the same about the uh um yeah. the catholic church if you look at it superficially um but right and whereas islam is alive and well and here i'd like to quote a little passage from uh hilaire Berlock's um 
uh, passage from the Great Heresies, where he writes that Islam is apparently unconvertible. The missionary efforts made by great Catholic orders, which have been occupied in trying to turn Mohammedans into Christians for nearly 400 years, have everywhere wholly failed. We have freed in some places driven, or sorry, we have in some places driven the Mohammedan master out and freed his Christian subjects from Mohammedan control. We've hardly had any effect in converting individual Mohammedans, or we could add to that, societies. You know, um, almost everywhere where there's been, uh, let's say, taken over by Islam, you never go back. Almost universally, let's say, the, the past experience with one exception, um, which was Spain, which is nearly entirely conquered by Muslims, and only at, after 700 years of fighting, uh, retaken for Christianity. Um, and now we may be seeing the reversal of that. We'll see. Um, so what then can we do? And, you know, why is that so much the case? You know, part of it, of course, is the very tight-knit social structure that Islam has. Um, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, let's say, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre is going back to him in his dealings in Senegal. He had a, you know, he was a Catholic archbishop, very small minority of the population overall. But one thing that was noting, uh, notable is that, you know, in the Catholic schools, he had found a lot of Muslims were very interested in having their kids educated that way. But um, he had to tap or cap the number of Muslims in any school at 15%, because otherwise they take over. Yeah, that's interesting. 15%, otherwise they'd take over. And in many cases, these kids, like being kids, they're like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I want to become Catholic. And yeah. uh, the archbishop's like, I can't. I can't, you know, baptize you. And part of the reason is he said, and I forget where, whether in one of the ways, is that, you know, if they're to do that, yeah. parents would come burn down the school. <laughs> it creates a problem. <laughs> um, you have these tight family networks. And at the same time, very integrated political and religious life. And there's no there's no remote conception of separation of church and state in Islam. You know. Yeah. So that does make it very difficult to convert. You know, and you have these other um, uh, episodes. Um, I remember one priest dealing with a uh, a Muslim in France who basically was working with him for many, many years and eventually decided to convert oh, wow. at the end of nine years. And part of the reason was, okay, look, uh, I have to weigh deeply sure. what the ramifications yeah. are going to be on this. Another interesting book along those lines to yes. read is uh, The Price to Pay, um, which is a really interesting biography. And uh, But there too, you know, you see that intense pressure um, both by family and by state, you know, because it's again, it's the uh, the guy spends years in a prison because of uh, his desire to convert. Um, yeah. And that was under, if I'm not mistaken, Saddam Hussein, you know, so even though Saddam Hussein was not a deeply believing uh, Muslim, still he's willing to throw the weight of his state behind that, at least for somebody who's going to convert, which in Sure. In Sharia law is punishable by death. You know, it's 
and not just a physical fear, but it's like, okay, look, this is something that is so awful, it merits death. So what do we do? Um, I mean, in a little way, this is an academic question for many of us here in the US, I would say, just because the mass majority of us are not going to have um, a lot of dealings with Muslims unless you fly. You know, basically in the airport you go through, there's a lot of Muslims working in the airports. It's very interesting. Um, but, you know, if we do, on the one hand, obviously we do have to, let's say, make some measure to give an account of the faith when circumstances seem to suggest it. At the same time, I would say that there's a certain lower level of that apologetics, at least in dealing with a convinced Muslim, you know, say kind of a westernized Muslim, you know, they're already partly not Muslim at that point. Um, since, you know, Muslims don't generally admit the importance of logic or philosophy, it's really hard to give a systematic progression of argument. Okay, if you accept this, then you have to accept this. Do, 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 do. I mean, again, it's it's worth doing, but I don't think we should really count on it too much. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's like our own my own experience. You know, dealing with that Muslim in in Paris. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not going to listen to that. That's right. you know not worth listening to. Um, right. But what I do think, and you know, what we can do as well is really it's a question of manifesting a profound confidence in our faith. Um, you know, say on a, as an individual being, let's say, yeah, confident, by which I mean on the one hand integral with who we are, basically ordering every facet of our life with respect or in accordance with the demands of the faith. I would say that's in a, the only first way to have any kind of, uh, let's say, way with a true Muslim. Because otherwise, they look at you and say, you don't believe in your God. You know, you're not willing to integrate everything about who you are in light of what you claim God to be. And that's just not serious. Okay. Um, and then secondly, a willingness to, to, before other people, assert that no, this is true. This is God who revealed this. Our Lord is God. And we're not just going to sit here and kind of pussyfoot around that and, you know, avoid right. offending people in their sensibilities. You know, there is a reality here. And again, we're talking in the context of a discussion, but um, it's precisely that that they're going to respect. Whereas um, that willingness to dialogue, they just viewed that as a sign of weakness. Dialogue in the sense of the modern church dialogue. It's like, okay, look, you're, you've basically already given up and you don't believe in what you have. And therefore, I have no reason to consider seriously what you have to say. It's just not serious. And basically, I'll bide my time. But my goal is quite frankly, I'm going to make sure the next generation of your people is Muslim. You know. And I mean, and then of course, yeah through our prayers and sacrifices and stuff like that. You know, there can be some appeals to Our Lady and whatnot, but again, what they understand by Our Lady is not what we understand. And, you know, she can make use of that, but it's not, again, it's not the same reality. Can I, can I riff on that for just a second, Father? And I don't know. I, I, I had heard this in a couple different places. Um, I don't know if this is just uh, Pollyanna thinking or overly optimistic or whatnot, but 
I had read somewhere online, and I know that's unimpeachable information there, Father, um, but Our Lady appearing in the town of Fatima, which was named for an, a, a Muslim princess right? because Portugal was uh, occupied by, uh, by the Turks, by, by uh, Muslims during much of its history. Um, and the fact that the Muslims do hold Our Lady in some high regard, obviously not the same high regard, but that, and again, I've heard that in, at the end or towards the end that the Muslims will come back to the faith because of Our Lady and Our Lady's appearance at Fatima was sort of a prefiguration of that. Is that just one of those piously believed things that is out there online or d- does that hold any credence to you that that the, basically the the way back for the the muslim uh, heresy and errors is through our lady well anything's possible <laughs> you know it's i mean fair yeah yeah um on a certain level she will certainly be intimately involved with those who do come to the faith whether that means you'll have an en masse conversion of significant numbers of Muslims because of some action of Our Lady. I don't know. You know, it's again, who knows what God the the um, the the actions of God's providence will prove to be. But when we look in the historically speaking at the interventions of Our Lady with respect to Islam, it's usually in the context of crushing military victories over them. You know, it's that's the feast of the Holy Rosary. It's a commemoration of her intervention to defeat the Turk Turkish Navy at Lepanto. The feast of the Holy Name of Mary is uh, a commemoration of her intervention to help lead to a victory over the Muslims at Vienna, um, if I'm not mistaken. You know, so, and perhaps, I mean, what I might say is, in a sense... That might be interlinked insofar as, you know, if you talk about uh, individuals converting, that's one thing. But talking about societies converting, that's an entirely different one. Um, And how, you know, how would you reason, like going back to um, uh, Belloc, he's commented that, okay, look, all these missionary orders that were devised to go and to bring these Muslims back to the faith all failed without exception, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, you you have St. Francis of Assisi going to talk to the Sultan and who apparently, at least according to one account, only didn't put him to death because he's like, This guy's insane. It's kind of it's kind of cute. You know, and so he marched <laughs> into my camp to to tell me about Jesus. Okay. That's I, I appreciate that. It's nutty. Yeah. But whatever. You know, I won't kill him. It's kind of neat. Um, or you have Charles de Foucault, who, you know, goes to tr- in the middle of the the desert, you know, trying to deal with these Muslims and you know, effectively nothing. Nothing. Um, you know, um, you know, if we're talking about what might break that, ultimately you're going to be talking about, um, yeah, breaking of the political power of Islam. Mm. Um, but that's only going to happen in the context of war. And, and frankly, not just that, but I mean, ultimately, if you're going to release that hold that is on men at this uh, societal level, that would mean that you'd have to conquer them. 
and more or less impose upon them uh, an empire where you eliminate um, the, um, let's say, the religious elite, like the imams and stuff like that, and basically break down that societal structure so that then in turn something could replace it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a, looking humanly things, that's just not going to happen <laughs> at all. Yeah. You know, you don't have the will or even the strength and to, to do something like that. Um, now, could there be some remarkable miracle? Of course, but that's beyond our ability to predict. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So, so, so in conclusion, what is, what is our job or maybe we don't necessarily have a job. Maybe we just need to have a proper mindset regarding Islam. I would say so. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's just for us important to be clear that Islam is fundamentally and diametrically opposed to Catholicism, and there's no yeah. intervening that. Um, there's no bridging that gap except by conversion, um, and no peace with it in the sense of mutual respect, comprehension, acceptance. Islam is fundamentally about subjecting the whole world to to, to Islam, and we, for our part, you know, have the commission by our Lord go and preach the gospel to all nations. You know, so in a way that has to be our aspect. But I, like I said, I wanted to quote maybe, and again, here in conclusion, in some measure, this passage from Father James Shaw, where he says that is is great. So the the Quran and thereby extension Islam cannot be changed and or reinterpreted and remain what it is. Wherever its text is read. It will inflame not a few souls, usually young men, to take up the mission of subjecting the world to Allah. The Quran is just not is not just a book to read. It is a book that sends men into the world with a flaming purpose. We may have a difficult time understanding this fact, but that is our problem. What I would say, therefore, what our aspect is, is to going back to that conviction. We have the truth, you know, and we, for our part, um, in, let's say, reading the gospel, reading the life of our Lord, that book is has even more right to send young men into the world with a flaming purpose, you know, something that's far more noble, far more in-depth and perfect than what it can possibly be offered by, you know, and John Quincy Adams take this brutalistic religion um and that's what we need and that's that conviction will make saints and that sanctity is the only thing that's going to convert men and to bring the world to the feet of our lord yeah father this has been a a fascinating look at, at the history the the belief system the structure and and what to think about uh the, the islamic faith so Thank you very much for putting the putting this all together for us in your time. And and this is the last time we have you on for the apologetics episodes. So uh thank you very much for I think your four or five episodes you contributed towards. No, thank you very much, Andrew. It's been a it's been an honor. Been a pleasure on my end as well. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. 
And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.